welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to Genetic Shambles. It's Wednesday. Uh, it was two weeks ago since the last one. That's why we're doing it again now. We do these fortnightly. And uh, this is uh, a show where we'll be talking um, with people who, unlike many of the people you've been seeing on, on television talking uh, about pathogens recently, these people actually know what they're talking They've spent a long time studying. They know things. They're not people who've just been dragged off a street to, you know, cut up a mask for some kind of TV stunt or whatever. Um, so this is, I should say, genetic shambles. That's very specific to something that happened this week that I won't go on any form of uh, soapbox. Just join me when I'm drunk on Facebook and I'll continue this. Um, anyway, genetic shambles is presented in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. And all of the episodes we've done so far are available up on um, video form and also in audio form as well. So you can go back. Uh, all of these uh, are recorded and we've talked about lots of different things. Obviously, we started off uh, unsurprisingly doing uh, panel all about COVID-19, but we've been talking about the nature of evolution, our understanding of genetics from the uh, perspective of uh, species divide. And uh, and we might even eventually, I don't think we've done yet one about uh, behavior, which of course is such an interesting area and a hotly debated area, but we might get around to that. So that one doesn't exist as yet. All the others do, though that one does also exist in the nature of the block universe, uh, but it's inaccessible to you for the time being. Um, also, I should mention Genetic Unzipped podcast. Uh, that is another place you can find us, but you can also find Kat Arney, who was on uh, two weeks ago as well. And uh, so uh, you can also go to YouTube for the live chat. And uh, if you have got any questions during this show, which I said is specifically about pathogens, but may well be tangential at times, um, then uh, we will ask live questions as well. So if there's anything you'd like to ask, um, I'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, now, uh, our guest today, the, the, the first uh, someone who uh, I last saw uh, out in New Zealand when we were doing gigs in uh, Wellington, Auckland and Christchurch, and I saw her in uh, in Wellington and Christchurch. Dr. Yes, Susie, Dr. Wiles, Susie Wiles, who is a microbiologist and associate professor at the University of Auckland and uh, has also been one of the leading voices of scientific information in the fight against COVID-19 in New Zealand, where, of course, it has been perhaps somewhat more uh, effective. In fact, we may well go off on a tangent very early <laughs> with this, uh, where we're broadcasting from who could really do with uh, with some good advice. Um, we're also joined by Jenny Rowan, who's a principal research, research fellow at University College London. And uh, she wrote, sorry, I did that University College London very much in a university challenge way. There are no questions. <laughs> uh, researched in 
bacteria and the human hosts, uh, which is why she has a slightly more ghostly light. You will actually see that introduction, bacteria, the human hosts behind her on the bookshelf, many stories, strange stories. Of bacteria, and we also have Lavania Main as well, as well uh, uh, final year PhD student uh, in the Tuberculosis Laboratory at UCL, and the Francis Crick Institute, where she is researching the metabolic interactions between prominent respiratory bacterial pathogens. So, uh, well, actually, let's not. I, I said we'd go off on 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 a tangent, and so we'll start on a tangent if you can, um, Susie. Just because you have, what have you found have been from the perspective of your own discipline? some of the misunderstandings that you you've you've seen during the covid-19 um crisis and some of the things that you have felt the need to correct which perhaps been in the mass media oh, <laughs> where do we start oh my goodness um gosh there's i think one of the things i've really learned is also um how much of our knowledge was perhaps based on dogma or really old experiments um one of the problems i think with infectious diseases as a research area is they've been quite neglected really um for a long time right you know uh Lots of the money now is pu pushed into cancer and various things. And so there's, there's stuff that we um, we know, um, especially around transmission of infections, that's actually based on some quite old experiments. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's been arguments um, about sort of the technical meanings of words like airborne and aerosol and things that have, you know, very specific meanings to microbiologists and infectious diseases people. But it kind of ended up being almost like... Um, Oh, and asymptomatic, there's another one, asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, which became almost like technical arguments that started to really muddy the water about people's understanding of what they needed to do. So that's sort of been really interesting. Um, the other thing I think that's been really fascinating has been how um, there's this huge focus on the virus um, and very little real understanding that it's just part of um, what we call the disease triangle that involves also the host and the environment. And what we're seeing around the world is just how important the environment is. And by that, I mean the political environment, you know, all of these things that can impact and uh, and and human behavior, social behavior, how that can impact on, on this virus. So, um, yeah, what I've been kind of doing is just trying to keep an eye out on uh, on what what sort of how the media is picking up on things and then going oh yeah no there's something that people don't understand and then trying to push out information that sort of tries to address that and tries to explain to people that it is actually quite complicated and while we're trying to make things really simple sometimes if you don't accept that it's complicated um people then just sort of you know sort of seem to think either everybody's um I don't know, misleading them. Um, and the other big thing, I think, is also how quickly things are changing and getting people to understand that our job as scientists is to um, keep looking at what evidence is appearing and changing our minds as the evidence changes. And so I've had so many people, you know, criticizing me saying, but you said something different in January. It's like, well, in January, we knew like almost nothing. And so this has also been, I think, quite a good opportunity to explain to people how science works. Uh, but we're trying to do that in a just such a noisy environment. And, and I think that's quite hard, <laughs> very clearly quite hard. I, I wonder, I wonder whether, whether, whether I'd like to ask you, Jenny and, and Lavanya as well, uh, perhaps starting with you, Jenny, are, are, there, are there certain things 
within this kind of pandemic that you would particularly like to underline in terms of, as, as you were saying, Susie, this is the trouble is the information changes. This isn't you know something that is new that is being dealt with. This is something, uh, and and we are in a society where, as you mentioned before, many things are very dogmatic, and it's seen as being a flip flop position. Whereas, of course, science is a flip flop position because. The information changes. So, Jenny, is there anything you've particularly found that you you would like to highlight to people? Yes, I think the infamous mask U-turn is a really big one. So, in the beginning, the WHO and most people were saying, "Well, masks won't help." And it's true that your average common or garden cloth mask is not going to prevent you catching COVID nineteen if you're confronted with a sneeze. But uh, as time went on, it became clear that actually wearing a mask will help a little bit. And it's certainly a good idea. And, and now it's sort of everybody appreciates the idea that a mask is a good idea. But, there, you know, I'm on record back in March saying, oh, no, don't wear a mask. And now I'm on record saying that, that, I, that you should wear a mask. And I find it a little bit uncomfortable because I know why I changed my mind is because the, the scientific sort of thinking change, but but people who see me and don't realize, as Susie so eloquently put it, that science is a rugby scrum going back and forth. It's not just truth. It's this back and forth thing. And we, everybody's fighting about it. Even scientists are fighting. You know, on Twitter today, I've been following with interest the leading epidemiologists sort of disagreeing with each other about the trajectory, like about what our famous UK 3000 K spike uh, our spike means. It's sort of interesting to see scientists fighting in public and the the public not understanding that this is normal. Can I just ask, so, just what, ask is, so what is the change in, in terms of the understanding of masks? Well, basically, I think masks were always a good idea, but they weren't. So especially in the UK, we couldn't advocate everybody wearing masks if people couldn't actually buy them because they were we didn't even have enough for our own, our own workers. But I think... I don't know, maybe you others have an opinion on this. I think basically we wanted to prevent it 100%. Um, and now we realize every little helps, right? Even a little bit of reduction in transmission will help. And, and a mask is a very easy thing that people can do. And it won't prevent all infections, but it will, it will dampen them down. So I think we kind of had this perfectionist idea of masks, that they weren't perfect, so we shouldn't wear them. And that's and that's not that's not tenable, really. I, th- I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, Levani? so... Oh, sorry, Susie. Well, one of the so one of the issues I think is um, this difference between whether people are wearing them to uh, stop transmission, as in if they have the virus, or whether they're wearing them to protect themselves. And it's very clear that if you are wearing a cloth mask or a surgical mask, you know. Um, and at the time as well, we were much more concerned about fomite transmission. So this is the transmission of the virus from surfaces. So it's very clear if you have a mask that doesn't fit properly to your face, like tightly to your face Mm -hmm. and you are not used to wearing one and you are touching your face a lot and adjusting it um that that is not a good idea if you think you're wearing the mask to protect yourself from from becoming infected and as jenny says you know there was a huge shortage everywhere and the real concern was that people who um were treating infectious patients and needed that as part of their full protective gear needed them um, now, of course, we know that fomite transmission, while it happens, is probably not a big contributor and that actually it is much more about pre- um, preventing you as an infectious person from shedding all of your virus. Mm-hmm. That changes everything, right? And people don't see that. They don't see the things that we were thinking or what, you know, even though we were trying to explain them at the time, they just see that, oh, you said they wouldn't work and you now you say they do. And it's because they were we were thinking about them as two very different things. 
um, you know, and when you're in a place with very little transmission of the virus, then actually, um, you know, you could argue that, well, actually, you should save them for the for the people who have, um, you know, who need them. But now there's so much transmission everywhere. The chance that you are one of those infected people and don't know it is why everyone should be wearing a mask. Yeah. And just to just to also say about the masks, the idea yeah. of you wear a mask because you are being considerate towards other people by you taking this very simple action. You're trying to protect everybody around you in the community and to really highlight that and show that that's still true, even though it may feel like um, we're getting kind of used to this new normal. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should be complacent. I think that that's also a thing to really highlight that you are protecting not just yourself, but literally everybody that you interact with. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. I just wanted to have a bit just because it does seem to be very much, you know, d d debated very often with people who uh, don't have the resources or understanding that, that, that you have. So let, let's start now with uh, the actual the, the the broad theme, which is path pathogens. And as usual, we will start with definitions. I know, Susie, it's something you talked about in, in, in your book, which is the annoyance of the, the confusion uh, by people like me between viruses and bacteria and, and what that means. So let's just start off basically with the definition of, of what a pathogen is? Well, so pathogen is basically a microorganism that can cause disease. And that could be cause disease in plants, cause disease in humans, cause disease in animals. Um, my own interest is in um, so uh, pathogens that cause disease in humans. Um, but then, yes, you've got this uh, these different categories of is it a virus? Is it a bacterium? Is it a parasite? Is it a fungi? And these are all very, very different types of creatures. And the reason that matters is that because of them being very different creatures, they require very different kinds of treatments, right? So um, if you're taking a drug to try and kill a microbe, you have to be able, you have to know what the microbe is and how it interacts with um, whether it's a human or an animal or a plant cell uh, and it ha you have to know how it's different so that your treatment targets that particular microorganism and not the cells of the host that you're trying to protect. Um, yeah, so I think we all now know a lot more about viruses in the in the general <laughs> in the general um, scheme of things. People know much more what a virus is now versus um, uh, you know other organisms, but probably st people still don't really know you know what's a parasite, what's a fungi, what's a uh, what's a bacterium. But essentially, they're all different forms life forms, I guess, that differ in quite different ways. Except viruses are not technically alive. Well, that's true. You know, I love the idea of these sort of self-replicating robot-like things that just go in and their, their sole purpose is to reproduce and they, they go in, they go out, they're completely uh, inert. You know, they're, they're not alive at all. And that's why I'm fascinated by them because they can, they subvert our host cells like little machines and, and, and make more copies of themselves and induce us to cough so that we'll spread more of these crazy robot particles. I think they're amazing because they're not alive. That's, that's what's so fascinating about viruses. Now, here's a tangent, here's a tangent that, we, that we can't go on for too long because uh, the, this takes hours. But yes. I always think when this subject comes up, it immediately brings the question, what is life? If it is, because there are many, obviously, you know, uh, uh, thoughtless creatures, living things. There are, why is, of, and I know there are some people, I think, who would debate that about, but, but what is the cutoff point with a virus, at least, why that is not given the definition of a living thing? One of the ways that I've described them, so I think probably how you've heard me describe them, Robin, is um, 
So to think of a uh, to 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 think of it as hardware and software, right? So if we think if we think of our phone, our phone comprises the hardware, the the phone itself, and then the, all the programs that it runs, which is the software. And so a virus is basically a piece of software that requires a piece of hardware to run, and it doesn't have its own hardware. Um, and so the hardware is the cell that it infects, and it basically has um, usually something on its surface that will that will recognize something on the cell's surface and then use that to enter the cell, and then now it's basically loaded onto that phone, loaded onto that hardware, and then it can run. Whereas bar um, bacteria, parasites, they they are the hardware and the software all put together, right? They don't need another cell. They often infect another cell. Sometimes they can stay outside of a cell or go inside of a cell and and, and manipulate it. But they have, um, although <laughs> there of course are exceptions. There are ones that have lived inside of cells for so long that they're kind of reducing all the genes that they need. So they do start to need to be with other cells. But, you know, broadly speaking, they have hardware and software, whereas viruses are basically software. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the philosophical of <laughs> quite what that um, what that means is uh, you know it's it's yes another thing and of course bacteria can get viruses too you know they're a cell and so they they get infected and in fact um, there are probably more viruses on Earth than there are um, bacteria because there are so many more that can also infect bacteria as well as our own cells and viruses very get viruses viruses yeah. also get viruses and and it, it may go on forever like that. Smaller and smaller, we just don't know. Now, now Lavanya, I wanted to ask you about this. With language, generally, we, we hear microbes and bacteria, and I think it triggers immediately the idea that it is something bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's that whole thing of like high in cholesterol. Oh, cholesterol's bad. And it, well, in yeah. fact, if you have no cholesterol, you know. They, so, can you give us some, some sense of, of the changing and understanding of actually what we, for, for ourselves, what is useful bacteria, what is not useful bacteria? Yeah, so, yeah, like while all pathogens are microorganisms, are microbes, but not all microbes are pathogenic, many of them actually are very important for normal functioning. And I think um, Ed Yong's book, what was it? I, I have multitudes. I contain um, multitudes. I contain multitudes, yeah. I think that was very important in trying, like, bringing this conversation um, to the public about the fact that you have trillions of bacteria and microorganisms that are important for healthy functioning. Um, and that's the most common example is your gut microbiome that help you digest your food um, and help you stave off illnesses. But you also have a respiratory microbiome, you have a skin microbiome. There's lots of useful microbes in the soil that help plants. Um, so really a microbe isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a small thing, um, which can be good or bad, but more often than not, it's, it's good and useful for you. But also, there are some that can switch. So there are some microorganisms that are pathogenic in some contexts, but um, actually quite normal and won't affect you in other contexts. And one of the organisms that I study is kind of falls in this category. It's called Streptococcus pneumoniae um, or the pneumococcus. And it just for many people, it just lives happily in the back of your nose and your throat um, asymptomatically, which means it doesn't actually cause any symptoms, it doesn't, doesn't harm you, doesn't cause any illness. Um, but there are different 
versions of this bacterium that can cause very severe disease like pneumonia or even meningitis in your brain. Um, so it's, it's all quite complicated, but a microbe isn't a bad thing necessarily. And also I wanted to know about that, about that um, the difference between a strain and a species. So, so we talk about different strains. What, what, what is that? Um, well, I can, I can start, but basically they're just methods of classification, right? So strain is um, part of a species so that it's significantly genetically different to another strain, but strains originate from the same, what we call ancestor, from the same like original um, species, and they're more similar to each other genetically now, we describe them genetically, um, than they would be to any other species. But it's just a way to classify um, organisms. It's just levels of taxonomy. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Jenny and Susie. You call it a yeah, I... right? I mean, it's a variant. Mm, it's a slightly yeah. different version of the same species. Go ahead, Susie. Yeah. yeah, well, if, I think humans are a really good example of this, right? So we're all one species, yeah. but we're all quite different depending on um, when our ancestors left Africa and moved around the world. And, you know, and then as you stay in certain places, you start to change. But also as uh, as people um, from different ethnicities mix, then you get new variants appearing, right? So this is this, I think, is a quite a good way of, of, um, of thinking about it. But the other thing about um, so you can have. Uh, so we have these species that are genetically um, distinct, although some of them can actually be quite similar. Um, yeah. And there are some way which you would consider, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of um, one of the, some of the Clostridia, that actually might be, they're considered different species, but only perhaps because they contain a toxin or not or something. So mm -hmm. there are also, there are ways that, that um, within a species they can change by becoming infected with viruses, which might give them extra genes like toxins mm -hmm. or something. Um but yeah, that also that, that as they mix and match with each other, as you know, basically as they have sex with each other and, and bacteria of completely unrelated species can essentially have sex with each other, mm -hmm. they can also change in that way. So um, yeah, within a species, you can have lots of, uh, of, of different strains that can actually end up being quite different. And there's there's a branch of, of microbiology that are all basically arguing about how we would even, you know, do you call things species? Do you call things strains? Um, mm -hmm. I just, that, that I leave them aside and just go, we'll just, we'll, we're just going to work with them. <laughs> and I think they also like frequently change whether something is now different enough. This group of what we thought was um, strains from a particular species is now big enough and different enough that now we're going to give it its own species. So it's a way of classification and to make things easier. And they usually behave um, in different ways. And they can also, Susie, you mentioned that um, they basically interact with each other and have sex with each other, but they can or like acquire toxins from viruses, but they can also like transfer genetic material, some some organisms between each other and exchange it and to form like millions of combinations um, that can help them acquire different characteristics. And one of the most important ones can be acquiring something that will make it resistant to antibiotics, which is very, um, very important topic to talk about. Um, so yeah, that's how strains work. Well, I suppose that that's part of, uh, if I can ask you, Jenny, about the progress change in pathogen identification as well. What in, in terms of what what are we able to do now? How are we able to scrutinize these things? 
Well, let's make a difference. So the genomic revolution, we can now sequence things. So in my field, urinary tract infection, which nobody ever wants to talk about, (laughs) it's deemed too embarrassing, but urinary tract infection is a huge problem, especially for women. Uh, Like most women's diseases, it's been historically neglected as a topic. But, you know, diagnosis used to be and still is completely based on culture, which means you have to be able to grow the bug for the doctor to to believe that you have an infection. And this is a huge problem because not all bugs grow very well in culture. And you have to have lots and lots of bugs before you'll see a signal in that culture dish. And with the advent of the sort of next generation sequencing and all these amazing technologies that have come to the fore, we can now start identifying very small amounts of bacteria and viruses and other things, uh, not having to wait till they they have to grow. And I, I look at you now, the TV person, you're in a TB lab, you know that it's, it takes months to grow some, some TB up, whereas I work with friendly bacteria that grow overnight. So, you know, if, you're, if your bug grows very, very, very slowly, like tuberculosis, yeah. then, you know, it's, 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 been, it's an amazing revolution that we can now sequence these things. It's, it's, like, it's like forensics. We can really dig deep into the microbiome. We can dig deep into pathogens. And when we get a new outbreak like SARS-CoV-2, we can immediately spring into action because of genomics. We were able to get the complete sequence of this virus and, and start working on a vaccine before we'd even culture the thing. So, so yeah, I mean, sequencing and genomics has made it an absolutely massive difference to the field. And, and I'm so glad I'm alive for this part of, of the revolution because it must have been really dreary being a microbiologist in the last century. Is, 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 would you agree with that, Susie? In terms of yeah. now, <laughs> this chance now in the 21st century, that that this this way of communication, this way of of being able to understand that that it has been a revolution. It, yeah, it, it has. I guess the you know what people are seeing with um with COVID nineteen is just how rapidly, uh you know stuff can change. How um even just the communication of scientific information. You know the fact that more people are using preprints. That you know most of the time it takes a long time to do things, and then the scientists really only write. You know. For each other and then they usually put that in a journal that you can only access if your library subscribes to it and so it's a very closed shop um, and that's always been a bad thing for science especially in our field where you know where doctors and uh, and other medical professionals and journalists need access to our information right and what we're seeing now is this huge change this massive shift in doing things much faster doing things more in the open um, I hope I mean it's been both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> you know, the, one of the things that's been quite distressing, I think, about the current situation has been what we're calling kind of academic profiteering. You know, people who are jumping onto, and this is actually extremely true of the sequence data. You know, because all the sequence data of all the different strains is being made available um, online, there are people who uh, maybe work on genetics but not of microorganisms who are just sort of downloading that data and then writing papers, communicating them to very prestigious journals and getting horrendous, horrendous information out there, really wrong information that they're getting very good, you know, supposedly academic publications out of. So there are disadvantages to the way things are working, but overall I think it's been a it's been a, an amazing thing. And, you know, what we're seeing also with the genomics is showing people how strains change, right? How how these um, what we call lineages as well in viruses sort of appear. Um, but it, it is amazing. Uh, you know, I think back to, so I work on, on the mycobacteria as well, this, um, this sort of family of organisms that grow quite slowly. Uh, you know, they are, one of the, the, in fact, 
the species that that we work on, they're just called non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Um, they went from maybe, I don't know, 10 species to now there's like 150 because they used to be, they didn't used to be able to classify them, you know, other than sort of some cha some like proteins on their surface. And now we can do genomics. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh my God, there's loads of them. And one of the disadvantages of living in New Zealand is we've got very strict rules around biosecurity to the extent that we have a, a, a law that basically says unless the organism was present in New Zealand before a certain date, it's like the 1990s or something, um, and by present they mean did somebody write a paper about it, um, it's not considered here in New Zealand and you have to get all sorts of permissions in order to work on it. And so we've got strains of bacteria that have changed name that have become really hard for us to actually do any work on because they're not considered in New Zealand and yet they're actually here. And, you know, it would be exactly the same for all the bugs in our gut, right? We don't know, uh, we don't know what they all are, but they're all here. They're all living in us, but we've got this really weird, quirky law that means that they're not present. And it's just, yeah. Anyway, so genomics has kind of changed everything in really great ways, but also in slightly complicated ways for, for some of us. That that almost sounds like the way our government thought that it was going to be able to uh, beat COVID-19. Well, we just won't let those things in. We won't allow any of those microbes or pathogens. No, no, they, we, they, they won't go. Jenny, sorry, did you want to add something? To, uh, no, 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 I'm just enjoying. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought your hand went up in, in that other bit, but it, I, I think the uh, uh, it may have just been a small amount of cramp. Lavanya, I, uh, something that was kind of being talked about already but i'd like to enlarge on a little bit is is that discussion about microbial interactions with other microbes which was kind mm -hmm. of hinted at a little bit can you give us a little bit of that story something perhaps an individual case to understand mm -hmm. yeah sure um so i think we talked about this right in the beginning about how um the virus the um, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus is one part of the whole disease triangle, right? So nothing exists in isolation and microbes as well, wherever they're living and in your body, especially, they don't just live alone. You know, there's other microbes in, in your um, respiratory tract, for example, there's human cells, there's immune cells, different types of human cells. Um, and all of those will be metabolizing things differently and secreting different things and making the environment um, a very specific place. Um, and microbes can interact with each other, you know, through so many different ways, right? They can directly um, secrete signaling molecules and basically talk to each other. They can um, affect the immune system in a way that then affects how another microorganism behaves. Um, so if we take the example of the current pandemic, this whole idea of a um, predisposing condition that certain conditions predispose you to COVID-19 is one aspect, but also that having COVID-19 will make you perhaps more susceptible to secondary infections and these secondary bacterial or viral infections lead to a more severe or worse outcome from the disease compared to if it was just COVID-19 alone. And we're learning um, more about this literally every day, but there are like large scale studies that have shown this correlation that co-infection is can lead to worse outcomes. Um, and also in the the 1918 flu pandemic, they found the same thing, like a lot of the deaths in the severe cases um, were a secondary bacterial infection and not just the initial viral infection. Um, 
so this this idea of like microbes living in an environment already where there are lots of things going on, but also interacting with each other and making the outcome worse is is quite important to recognize because we often will study an organism, you know, like in very controlled conditions in the lab. And that's in, you know, that's that's fair because it's very difficult to replicate such a complex environment so we can study it accurately. Um, but we we do study microorganisms often in very isolated, controlled conditions because we want to try and understand everything about it. And then we maybe overemphasize every single like snippet of a gene signal ex- overexpression that we get. Um, but it's important to recognize this environment and other microorganisms that might interact um, with it. Jenny, I know that you've also got some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that the, the opposite side of the coin is the way that the microbes can actually help us and uh, t- to prevent infection. So you're talking about co-infection where two two bacteria sort of synergize in evil and an axis of evil and make you worse. But actually, the other the opposite is true. For example, in the gut, there's, there's lots of really friendly bacteria that, that are actively preventing other pathogenic bacteria from getting you. So you can find this out when you take a lot of antibiotics and you start killing off your friendly bacteria in the gut mm-hmm. and you'll find that you'll probably end up with diarrhea um, and maybe even a, a worse infection by something like C. difficile. So it, it, it's called dysbiosis. It, it means that there's a balance there and when the balance is off, that's when you get sick. And we're, we're starting to wonder now in the, in the bladder whether this is true because traditionally in the textbooks, urine is sterile right? And they say if you're a Boy Scout and you cut yourself in the woods, you should rub yourself with urine because it's sterile. That's not true. Uh, Genomics has taught us that the bladder is teeming with bacteria, not surprising at all because it's open to the environment. And we're starting to think that perhaps the bacteria in the bladder are helping to prevent urinary tract infection. And if you get the balance wrong, that's when you get sick. So there's so much we don't know about the interactions of bacteria, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Susie, Susie, would you like to? Yeah. This is also one of the reasons why I really hate antibacterial products. Like people always say, you know, oh, you're a microbiologist, like you must be so clean and you, you know, you obviously don't eat food off the floor. And, uh, and I'm like, no, you know, there's a kind of five second rule in the house. You know, it depends on what surface it's fallen on and, and what the food is. Um, and, you know, and we don't really use antibacterial products because, you know, I, I, I know which one, which bacteria are dangerous and what are the things that you do to prevent that. Like, you know, you don't go putting raw meats and chicken, you know, with, you know, your veggies. But I'm not, I'm not, yeah, obsessed with this thing because I am really worried, you know, about people who use antibacterial soaps and all these things, how you end up, you know, disrupting all the good microbes that are there. So I think you're absolutely right that that people have this very um, skewed idea of of microbes as being all germs, you know, and germs being a bad thing, whereas actually the vast majority of them are amazing and we wouldn't be us without them. You know, in, in reality, we are a bag of microbes in a human skin. We're more microbe than we are human. And so, you know, we need to protect our little our, our little hangers-on <laughs> um, and not try and destroy them all because most of them are really useful for us. Right? Oh, I really wish I had my overflowing food bin that I've got at the moment, which has, <laughs> you will be so proud of some of the things that are growing out of that at the moment. There's <laughs> nothing antibacterial or anti-anything that's gone near that. There's, the spores are ready. Um, I want to, because we're talking on that, th- your, your your book about antibiotic resistance. So let's move again, that bit where 
there are times when we think this is helpful. It's sometimes in that whole, there was no woman who swallowed a fly kind of situation. We take something and we think that's going to be. So let's talk a little bit about antibiotics because there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about antibiotic resistance and about the dangers of antibiotics. So firstly, this is just a very, well, this is almost comes from me. I, I had a, a molar out the other day, which is kind of a, it was quite a rotten tooth. And I was given amoxicillin, which is uh, penicillin basically, as far as I, I, I know. And, why, for instance, do I have to do the whole course? What is the reason? Even if everything ends up being fine and it turns out, you know, but what's that reason so that people can understand? Yeah. That? Oh, so actually this is where kind of is a little bit fuzzy. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, so yeah. Okay. So antibiotics are basically uh, medicines that kill bacteria and uh and the broad category is antimicrobials which are drugs that kill microbes but as we talked about in the at the beginning you know viruses are very different from bacteria are very different from parasites so they have different classes of drugs so um and the and the real worry is well i mean it's, uh, the, the real thing that is happening is that because these um microbes evolve i mean all of us evolve every cell in our you know every time a cell replicates this is true of viruses this is true of bacteria uh mistakes get made just by sheer chance um and then uh, depending on whether that mistake is a good or a bad thing you know a cell can either survive um or uh, or die um, and so just by sheer chance, we have got, so for, if we take bacteria, for example, you know, they multiply, some of them multiply quite rapidly, but they multiply to very large numbers, <laughs> insane numbers. Um, and so that means that these very small mistakes, even if they're very rare, can end up happening. Um, and sometimes by sheer chance, these mistakes will make, um, if we're talking about bacteria, resistant to drugs. And then the question becomes, if the drug is present, that microbe then has an advantage. Um, and so what's been happening with antibiotics is they are these incredible medicines that really did completely revolutionize, you know, our health, right? We, you know, before the discovery of antibiotics or discovery that, you know, these are these are also um, things made by other microbes, essentially, you know, as they live in these communities and they're fighting with each other and they're competing with each other, they make these amazing drugs. Um, we started using them as medicines in humans in about the 40s. And that with that then came the ability to do surgery safely, you know, all of these incredible advances in medicine, cancer chemotherapy, all of these things where you end up with a patient being vulnerable to infection, you know, med these antibiotics helped to save those patients from, from, um, from dying of an infection. So we've been using them huge amounts in humans, but also in animals. Um, and that means that they are just, our world is just awash with them. You know, every time you take an antibiotic, the vast majority of it just goes straight out in your waste and into the into the environment, into wastewater treatment plants. And the same with our animals, um, in the same in the sea and in aquaculture and, and, um, and in horticulture. And so that means that in the environment where we know, you know, in the soil where there are huge numbers of microbes, they are exposed to these antibiotics. And they are basically that that is selecting for these resistant organisms because they're in an environment where they have an advantage. And then because the you know bacteria have this ability to share genetic material, they can basically just 
move it around. So these completely unrelated species can then pick up these resistance genes. And so you can go from, you know, um, a bacteria that lives in the soil that has no relationship whatsoever to human disease becoming resistant to a, um, an antibiotic and then through this kind of, you know, a several little steps can end up being a bacteria that lives in your nose that doesn't cause any harm to you unless it gets into your bloodstream and then you could die because the doctor is not able to treat that bloodstream infection because it's resistant to an antibiotic. So it's this incredible thing that's been happening, which Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, you know, warned about in his Nobel acceptance prize. He was like, because we knew even then before they were used in humans, that bacteria could become resistant to these drugs. And he said, you know, use them really wisely. And, um, we didn't. And so now we're in this position where for some organisms, there's basically nothing left to treat them with. And, you know, we're we're in a position, we in, so in New Zealand will be the same in the UK, we're in a kind of fairly privileged position where those infections are not widespread. But there are many places in the world where they are. And then obviously, because we can move around so much, although that's not quite so true anymore, perhaps in the middle of a pandemic, you know, these organisms can move um, around the globe. And so it's just this kind of incredible thing where we are losing um, this amazing, yeah, these amazing tools we have to treat infection. Um, but it's a bit like climate change where people can't really see it happening. And so there's no real acceptance that our world is going to change. Our ability to do medicine is going to change quite, um, quite significantly fairly soon. Um, and that's a real worry because there's very little, you know, um, effort being put into developing new um, antibiotics. Uh, and that was true before COVID and it's going to be even worse now because the mm -hmm. focus is entirely on um, COVID and viral infections. Mm -hmm. now, I've got a, now, I've got a quick this question for all of you. I once had a, some kind of gum inflammation that was was so bad that I was put on whatever. And now I was put on these antibiotics where I was told these really are the ones you're not allowed to drink on. You lose three to four days if you do it. And by the way, it wasn't a gum infection. It turned out the dentist had left a large piece of metal in my mouth. That's eventually what we found out it was. But I remember that night where uh, I was on, on tour with Brian Cox and the bloke uh, went, my wife's a doctor. Of course you can drink on antibiotics. And I went, oh, I'm on these. And he went, no, God, no, you can't. <laughs> what are those antibiotics called and why do they do that? <laughs> Does anyone know? That there's one in particular, which is, I think... Yeah. Uh, I know what it's called because I've I've been given that one as well. Um, it's it's meth. You know, let me think about it. If someone else wants to talk about like, what do you know why you can't drink um, on them? But I, I think I know what this one is called. That I felt, yeah, it was yeah, it was fascinating. I'll give you, I'll give you one of the audience questions that we've had, and, and we come. That was a very personal. It was just, it was a fascinating uh, thing to me. That, that, again, that thing which happens with infections as well, the way that they can affect the brain, the way. Oh, yeah, it's it's uh, when you were talking about urine, for instance, you know, the urinary tract infections. But this is not the question Chris has. Uh, Chris would like to know if we've known about antibiotic resistance potential since the 1940s, could we have done anything about it, or is it just an inevitable consequence of needing to cure? things we could have just think about it chris i mean people have been warning about this you know it's been in the popular press since the 40s and 50s as well we simply have to stop misusing them so not taking them when you have a cold which is caused by a virus not spraying them all over animals this is an interesting fact farmers give antibiotics to animals not to sort of protect them in advance from any infection but because they for some weird reason they give animals a slight 
increase in mass. So if you treat your flock or your, your herd with antibiotics, they get slightly bigger. So of course, everyone in the world wants to treat their flocks with antibiotics. So they'll be slightly bigger, not really realizing that all everyone has to do is stop doing that. They'll all get slightly smaller and it won't be a competition issue. So, so they've been completely misused. As Susie mentioned, they're impregnating the earth. The earth is awash with these chemicals. We're educating the bugs to to be resistant. And and I think we could have stopped doing that. We could have stopped misusing them. But you know, it's really difficult. You know, if you're a parent, for example, I've got a small child. When my small child is ill and I go to the doctor and I'm not sure if it's a virus or a bacteria, you know, I'm asking that doctor for antibiotics. I can't help myself. It's, it's sort of human nature to to be worried about things like this. So it's, 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 there's a lot of human behavior involved. Uh, and I think the behavioral scientists will be key to helping us crack this issue of how do we wean ourselves off misusing and abusing this incredible tool that, that as Susie says, we've squandered. When we get new antibiotics, as I'm sure we will one day, when we get new ones, we're going to have to lock them up with a key. This is called stewardship. It means when we get new antibiotics, uh, we use them very, very sparingly and very, very carefully and don't don't just throw them into the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really tough problem. Susan. Yeah, and one of, one of the issues has been this di diagnostics, right, is that, and we are seeing that played out very large with the pandemic, that it is very difficult to quickly diagnose um, whether somebody has a bacterial infection or a viral infection. And then if they have a, you know, if they have a bacterial infection, which bacteria is it? What is the appropriate drug? I mean, this is, this is, I think, is also one of the problems that we've had that, um, you know, depending on how ill a person is or how demanding they are of their doctor, traditionally, it's just been, oh, well, just give them a, what we call a broad spectrum antibiotic. So something that will just, well, hopefully it will just hit whatever it is rather than something very specific that will be targeted more towards the microbe that they likely have. Um, and so th this has not helped in terms of resistance. Um, but, you know, what we really need are these really rapid ways of, of when somebody turns up at their doctor surgery or in hospital, being able to very quickly within a few hours say, this is what you have and this is going to be an appropriate treatment. Um, and, and it's something that hasn't really been solved yet. So, you know, what was really cool was a few years ago, um, I don't know whether you remember the Longitude Prize, so a few years ago, the UK kind of said, okay, well, we're, we're going to make antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance um, the kind of uh, the, the subject of the longitude prize. And they made diagnostics the thing that everyone had to um, aim for. And I can't remember. It's, just, it's a big prize that's kind of open to anyone around the world who can help solve this problem. Um, it may well be coming to a close soon, and I don't think anybody's solved it because it is no. a really, really big difficult problem that we've that we've always had um and you know the hope is that new technologies can help this along uh, you know with with um SARS-CoV-2 it's you know it's the use of uh kind of genetics and stuff but you need material from the organism right and that can be really difficult when somebody turns up with hospital in hospital they've got you know um and possibly sepsis, you know, so blood, kind of blood poisoning, but is there even a micro, you know, can you even get to the microbe in their blood? I mean, this is a, yeah, it's a really, really hard, hard problem. And it's, it's I think it gets to the heart of why we've also in human medicine misused them. That obviously doesn't excuse how they've been misused <laughs> in, in other, in other activities like in agriculture. So would it be, so would it be fair to say, Lavania, and I'll open this up to all of you, that then this, Sometimes you, you, you see pieces written in the press about antibiotic resistance, which suggests this is just what happens in a Darwinian world, in a Darwinian universe. 
but it's not necessarily it really is about the fact that when we do get what might be considered if we use the word victories over you know how nature might attempt to debilitate us you have to think very very carefully and you have to go we use it here and we use it so it's it's more down to our inability to control sometimes absolutely i don't think it's something that you just resign yourself to um that it just happens you know this is just um the way things work and pathogens well it is true that pathogens microorganisms will keep evolving um but to be um too liberal with the use of antibiotics is definitely not 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 the way to go um it's it's like it's like um elongating the life of an antibiotic for as long as you can basically you know it's not that you can keep using one um antibiotic forever but at least try to extend its life um so that it lines up with the rate of how new antibiotics are being produced which actually isn't very fast because like we discussed there are many issues and many challenges in there um but definitely it's not something to just you know that's how it is just you know, keep taking your antibiotics. Yeah. Susie. Well, one of the issues has also been this kind of siloing, siloing between, between human medicine, between agriculture, you know, that, that um, there's a move now for what we call one health, this kind of idea that what happens in animals, in humans is all interrelated, right? So the fact that, you know, you can use an antibiotic in uh, horticulture or in agriculture that is one that is absolutely crucial to human health is ridiculous right mm -hmm. and it's because you know there's been no real um talk <laughs> no no you know everybody's just been doing their little thing and so it need we need to be much more joined up about how you know there's very clearly reasons why you need to have drugs that work in um you know in agriculture too uh, but the fact that there's no communication between the different disciplines you know or, or at a regulatory level the fact that people who are regulating human medicines are not the same people regulating medicines in other areas is just farcical right so so all of that also does doesn't help that people have not been, um, you know, the, the, there hasn't been this good interaction between the two. Um, and here in New Zealand, we, so every country a few years ago was basically asked to put together an antimicrobial resistance plan, right? How is every country going to do their bit? Here in New Zealand, there was a group of people who came together from both, you know, the human side and the animal side. They put together a plan to make a plan, um, and it was sort of um, held between what we have, the Ministry of Health here, and then the Ministry of Primary Industries, which is the one that will will deal with the kind of animals and stuff. And in the plan, it was or the plan to make a plan was very clear. We have to keep these two things together. The first thing the two ministries did was split it apart, and there is now a human group and an mm -hmm. animal group. And it's like, well, that's clearly not going to work. <laughs> so but that's what we like to hear. We need to hear that because we see, we see New Zealand, we see where you are as nothing more than a utopia. If we don't start finding out about your flaws, you know the property prices are going through the roof and you've got to... <laughs> yeah, Time, but but sorry, Susie. No, no, it's fine. The, uh, we've run out of time, but we have the live chat is now packed with people who want to know why can you drink on some antibiotics and not others so is does uh, amongst you is there anyone here who would like to what what is it where with some antibiotics it's not merely that it doesn't make them work it's that it can uh, as we said three days disappear and then you slowly retrace your steps like a film noir jenny yeah. uh, i have 
no idea, but I want to know the answer. Levania? Um, so the antibiotic that I think you would right, describe right, is right. called metronidazole. Um, it's quite That's common right, yeah. for like pair like oral um, gum infections. Now I don't. I think we don't know why it causes this like adverse reaction with alcohol. There's obviously some sort of reaction that happens. But what I suspect, an educated guess, is when they you know every drug every vaccine has to go through stringent safety efficacy trials so probably when they were going through these um, trials they found that some people who were drinking alcohol and taking the antibiotic had some very um, serious side effects and so they said you know what just don't do it otherwise it works perfectly so my guess is they saw they observed this um, probably at like the trial stage and decided that it's serious enough and it happened in like a large enough proportion of their um you know their their test subjects that they decided just to say don't do it but we don't know actually i did a quick like search of why but i don't i don't think we know exactly what happens susie if you anything to add on that it could be that i guess you know drugs are chemicals right and sometimes when they act they get turned into other chemicals mm-hmm. and so it could be either something that is a uh, um alcohol impacts on you know either one of the byproducts or this chemical to make something that's quite noxious to us it could also be that um uh you know that um in some people maybe they either their gut microbes or something metabolize alcohol in a way that produces a byproduct again that can work um kind of in a in a bad way with either this drug or byproducts of this drug so we yeah i mean these these things happen and i think another one is grapefruit juice there are drugs that you can't drink grapefruit juice with um and so it'll be about some sometimes just these kind of what we call you know metabolites or byproducts that are made that then interact in a terrible way um but it's kind of fascinating uh and and yeah amazing so there we are much like consciousness antibiotic insanity still remains a mystery it is one of yet another of the hard problems um thank you so much uh to to jenny to lavania to susie for joining us um as i said all of these uh episodes are available and you, you can also get audio versions as well if you're out uh jogging or something like that and uh i would also like to uh thank as you genetic society and the milner center for evolution at the university of bath and also to our producer um trent burton uh we're back in a fortnight for another live episode uh, and I, I will remind you again, regular viewers, that we are going to do two episodes for those ones where suddenly everyone sent their questions at quarter past nine. We are going to do some follow ups and we are going to do some Q&As with those. Uh, but we're back in a fortnight and uh, I'm not sure. Do you know what? I'm not. Oh, we're going to do another expert panel on uh, on COVID-19 as well. So tweet us any questions you want. And we are hoping, I think, in the next few weeks, we're going to try and do a few short kind of expert films explaining some of the things that people keep bringing up, some of the kind of conspiracy theories and some of the things about you know certain health advice which people aren't taking again very often from a kind of conspiracy mindset or i would say a uh, um, misled libertarian point of view uh, we'll be uh, dealing with that as well so thank you very much everyone we'll see you at the next genetic shambles bye-bye <laughs>